Welcome to Rogue Bogues Basketball, Episode 5, myself and the big guy, Pro. What's going on? Bogues, how you doing, brother? I'm good. Holding up, man. Interesting week. A lot to talk about again. You know, there's never a shortage of things to talk about, especially when you're talking the NBA, right? It's better than a soap opera, right? There's always something going on off the court's almost more important than on it these days. No question. No question. Let's get right into it, man. It was a, there was a big trade that happened. Obviously, most people that follow NBA basketball would be aware of it. First off, I think we need to have a moment's silence for the exotic dancers and strippers in the city of Houston. I think they're going to be doing pretty tough financially now after losing James Harden. But at the uh, end of a tunnel, there's always light. So the the, the same uh, industry in Brooklyn will definitely see a surge. Now, you've been like the CSI Australia trying to hunt down strippers to talk about this, have you have have you had any ongoing talks in your investigation, Sergeant Bogut? <laughs> no, they work in the shadows. They're hard to get on. Hard to get on a podcast. Um, and even if we did get them on, I doubt we'd get the the real the real name, right? <laughs> but um, it will be interesting. Yeah, no question. Yeah, it will be interesting to see how that that all goes. But let's get a little bit serious. Let's break it down. I'll go through it real quick. So Brooklyn win now. Obviously, they they gave up a fair bit. For James Harden, James is obviously getting older, but obviously a, an elite, one of those probably elite seven that you have in the league. At one point, it was rumored Philly were were lurking and Ben Simmons was thrown into a deal, but I believe this was just used as leverage to boost that Brooklyn deal. So they get three first round picks in 22, 24, 26. Now, everyone thinks they'll be late first round picks because Brooklyn will be good, but look, I'm I'm kind of thinking otherwise. I think there's a potential for 24 or 26 to be a higher pick. With the way players move around these days, that big three, you don't see it lasting more than three, four, five years. I mean, teams just don't stay together, especially superstars. And I think maybe by 26, they could be in a rebuild. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, they get two picks in uh, 2022. They get their own... um I'm sorry, they got a pick from Milwaukee that they got uh, from the Cavs and then they get their, uh, they got the Nets in 22 and it, it's the haul of picks and things that Houston got was, it was incredible. I, uh, I agree with you, especially with players today not really staying in one spot and things going badly pretty quickly. I'm not saying it will go bad necessarily in Brooklyn, but maybe in a few years, I think that it, it's a problem. You know, it could be a problem, problematic at the end of it. But you know, I don't think they have to win right now. I think with the trade, their their bench is depleted. They don't really have the the firepower off the bench like they did. They have obviously the three guys, but now they, you know, I think I think they're going to be like sort of how Miami had issues the first year. And I'm not even I'm not even going to start to you know compare them to Miami. Well, what they had with James, you know, Bosch and, and D Wade, but I'm saying is like they couldn't really get it together the first year. And I think that they have to sort of pick up a couple of more players this offseason to really get it going. But um, it'll be interesting for sure. That's what we wanted, right? It would give us a whole lot more content for the podcast. That's for sure. I mean, um, <laughs> yeah. I, f- I feel like Steve Nash will either be the coach of the year or get fired within a year or two. <laughs> I, th- I don't think there's an in between. With that group, because I think they're putting all the all the chips on the table, and I'm looking forward to who takes that la- that game winning shot at the end of a game, and who it's who it's drawn up for. So that'll be interesting to watch. Yeah, it'll totally be interesting. I think with all the big threes that have been have been assembled over the years, I think this is the most sort of controversial as far as like attitudes towards like needing to be the number one option, having to have the needing the ball in their hand. 
I mean, let's be honest, like, at least with Irving and Hodden, they need the ball in their hands. They don't operate well when they don't have the ball. You know, uh, KD doesn't necessarily need the ball in his hands, but in my opinion, he's their best player, so he should have the ball in his hands. But those two other guys, I think, like we talked about early on earlier shows, it's all good when things are going well. But you get punched in the face once and you face adversity. How are you going to act? You can't just take a week off like Irving did when, when things get tough. I think it's going to be a tough thing. It might be great for the first couple of weeks, first month, first two months. But I think when things start getting tough, it's going to be how many shots you get you know, sitting in the corner sometimes, not getting the ball as much and as infrequent as he used to have in it. I think it's going to be a tough deal. Yeah, it's a honeymoon period right now. And I think you look at most big threes, there was still kind of the hierarchy. Like Miami was still LeBron. Um, I think Golden State was probably the most kind of accepting. You know, Steph and Clay were kind of the perfect superstars to accept another superstar in the mix and not be kind of disgruntled by it because they're just going to play their game regardless. So this one, I agree. I think they're all, but if you asked each one of them, who's the number one option and who should take the last shot. I think all three of them would say me. So (laughs) it's going to be – Yeah. I I agree too. I think KD is the best player on that team um, by far. And I think he's obviously does a whole lot more than just score. And and he's, in my opinion, the the – one of the toughest players uh, to guard to stop getting a bucket. He's just got so much stuff in his bag and he's seven foot tall. So, I mean, Bogues, you were around it, right? Like, you know, especially with your second service on the team about their big three and what they had in Golden State. Like how how do you you know how do you navigate through it? Can you explain it a little bit? So, you know, Cause I think you could give some great feedback of how how sort of they operated because they were probably one of the best as far as sharing the ball, not really having an ego and not having any issue really. What what could you say about it? Oh they were just lucky they had Stephen Clay because they're I mean Clay is one of the most nonchalant he just wants to play basketball, and when he catches it, he's shooting it, and that's that's Clay. And other than that, give him his dog and a few other things he likes doing <laughs> outside of basketball, and he's happy, right? So <laughs> yeah. And Steph was the face of that franchise. A lot of people don't realize Steph lost probably the most out of having KD come into that team because Steph was the Golden State Warriors. He was on all the billboards. He had a massive shoe deal. So now you've got a Nike athlete and KD coming in, and a, and probably. As big, if not bigger name, people could argue either way, not in the Bay Area, but in, in the scheme of um, NBA basketball, and Steph accepted that. So you don't really get that that often. I think that was a unique situation, Pro. I don't think many teams will have it go as smoothly with those two superstars that were already there, just accepting another superstar, as much as guys try to say. But Golden State were just lucky they had two good people in that locker room that were like, hey, KD's going to get us an extra two or three rings. Welcome aboard. Yeah, I can't really ever tell somebody how to feel, how to act or react. And and I think, you know, we always dissect things, right? But if you're making a shitload of money, if you're getting all the touches you want, you're winning games and you're on the West Coast in a, you know, a beautiful part of the country. I mean, you got to be like, hey, you know what? Let's, I could back up a little bit. I mean, there's going to be plenty of opportunities for me to get my numbers. I'm, I'm getting paid. We're winning. You know, but again, some people react a little bit differently to that. You know, with Miami, the big thing about Miami's big three was that, you know, Wade Wade and Bosch didn't need the ball in their hands. They were good cutters. All three of those guys could cut. LeBron probably dominated the ball mostly out of those three. But like Bosch took a back seat and he didn't really care. You know, he, he 
he operated like he, he he could put his numbers up. If you need him to score 25, 30, fine. But he could sit in the corner, make shots, cut, post up, pass. And I think that sometimes one of those players sort of has to take a back seat. See, I hate that bullshit about whose team it is. It's my team. It's your team. Look, the way the game's played today with all the extra possessions, you're going to get your chance. There's 82 games. There's plenty of time to get yours. And if you're going to win, you're going to get paid and, you know, you live in the life like shouldn't be a big deal. But then again, everybody reacts differently to things, you know? Yeah, it's a weird one. I think it takes the pressure off you as a max franchise guy to have two other guys or one other guy next to you that's taking a bit of the load off you as well because there's not that pressure of you having a having to carry the load every single night. I think it's, like you said, you're still making your max salary. You're playing for a very good team, chance to compete for a championship most times and not with a big three. And you don't have that burden. Like James Harden had early in his career in Houston, he had the burden of if he doesn't drop 30 plus, they're probably not going to win a game. Whereas now he could have 10 and five and they could potentially still win. So, I mean, I, I agree. That Houston marriage with Harden was great for both parts because – I don't think in Oklahoma City, now they could have won championships if they kept those three together, but I don't think he would have sort of made the jump as a player um, anywhere else but Houston because they revolved the whole team around him. And they said, look, you do whatever you want on on and off the court, uh, but like on the court especially. You have the ball, you can do whatever, and they built their whole roster and everything was featured to him. So he does owe a lot to that city and that city owes him a lot because you know, their their roster really wasn't going anywhere. They made that trade you know, with Oklahoma. Yeah. So I think it was a good marriage on both ends. It just ended badly like they all do. And, you know, they just sort of had to move on from them. Well, moving on to Houston. So Houston get Oladipo, who is potentially going to opt out of free, become a free agent, essentially. Uh, Dante Exum, a bit of an, some Australian love there. And then Kurix and a boatload of picks. So, I mean, I think they're obviously in a rebuild phase. Um, they have a, a rookie head coach. Um, they're going young. They're developing. Oladipo might not even return this season. He's had a, a quad issue. The interesting one for me is Dante Exum. I mean, he he came out um, as a pretty highly touted young guy that would be pretty good in the league, and he he's, he's had an injury history, which doesn't help. Take it from me. But he just hasn't been able to fit in anywhere. I mean, how do you see Dante for our Aussie listeners? I mean, he's a I don't know if he's a one or a two. I haven't spent a whole lot of time with him. I played with him a little bit in the national team, but he got hurt. And ever since then, it just seems like he can't fit in with a team or find a role. Bogues, and you know as much as anybody just being around it for so long. Once you start getting hurt, you know, there's some freak injuries that people have and they just move on. They never get hurt again. But once you start getting that second injury, third injury, it just sort of follows you around. It just follows you around, and it's tough. And, you know, he's not really a great shooter, especially how the game's played today. You know, he's not really a one, not really a two. He was a, he was a gifted basketball player early, but now he's got to sort of readjust. Look, I, I said it before. It's sort of like trying to tell me who like who a prom queen was three years ago or four years ago. You know, in, in, in the United States, they have in high school, they have prom queens where, you know, be, best guy, best girl sort of get, they, they get an award or, or, you know, they get celebrated at the end of the year nobody remembers three or four years ago nobody remembers if you're a top five pick or not They're, all they remember is what you're doing now and he's had such an injury history he hasn't really been able to show anybody they could really do so he's got to sort of try to play it you know year by year how am i going to fit in with the game the way it's played today 
He's going to have to be a cutter. He's going to have to be a driver. He's going to have to make plays for other people. That may not be his game. I don't think he's had enough time to showcase what he can do to really, you know, develop true value in the league. Yeah, I would think he 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 should probably focus on for me be a lockdown defender. Whoever you're guarding, make it hell for them whether you're playing 5 minutes or 20 minutes and just try to Make sure you can hit that wide open feet set three, which he's got better at. I'll give him credit. Still not a fantastic shooter, but a little bit more confidence shooting it. And focus on those two. Become a three and D guy and you'll find some minutes and then just try to try to work your way back from there. But I think the days are gone uh, where a team kind of trades for him or, or has him and, and gives him the keys to the team as a two, three, four option because he was a top five pick. I think that ship has kind of sailed. So we'll watch that one with interest anyway. The Cavs. They they got involved in this late and they ended up getting the big fella from um, Jared Allen they got and Jared Allen, Jared Allen yep. and, and Torreon Prince. That's an interesting one because they got Andre Drummond. I assume the days are numbered for him now. He just had a twenty and twenty game yesterday, funnily enough. But um, that's an interesting move considering they they just traded for Drummond last season and thought they were going to make him the franchise big. But now now they get Allen, who I think's a really good young big and coming into his own. So I don't know what the Cavs are doing there. Yeah, I mean, first of all, if you look at their roster, they have like five centers. You know, it's a little strange what they're doing. Maybe they're going anti small ball and they're just going to go all big. Yeah, I mean, we're going. Yeah, we're going. Um, they're going bankruptcy ball, actually. It's not money ball. It's bankruptcy <laughs> ball. We're just going big. But what it does, Bogues, it gives them a, a player that's a little bit younger. Drummond's just coming off his five-year, like $127 million contract. So he, I think he's getting something like $28 million this year. He'll become an unrestricted free agent. What it can do is at trade deadline, you could probably line up, you know, try to get a couple of teams, maybe to get you a pick, maybe multiple picks, maybe a young player. You can go forward with Allen. Allen sort of, you know, he doesn't have the sort of incredible Hulk numbers that, you know, that Drummond puts up, but he's actually sort of developing into a pretty nice, you know, starting center in the league. I think that you could do a little bit more with them offensively than Drummond can. Neither one of them are shooter spacers. They're, they're true bigs. If I'm them, maybe evaluate and see who you're going to try to deal. I would probably deal Drummond and then maybe you can get a little bit more value at trade deadline. But, you know, it's interesting. Even going back to Houston, that owner, you know, I don't know if you've read up on him, uh, Bogues, but the owner sort of is in some financial problems. I mean, most of his fortune. The restaurants, right? Restaurant, Landry's restaurants, which I'm a uh, card carrying member, shocker. <laughs> and the se- and the second, the second thing is, you know, the the Golden Nugget Casino. So, which is really strange, uh, which is really cool. His team, when they go to Summer League, they don't go on the Strip. They stay in Old Vegas. They stay in the Golden Nugget, but. So he's he's struggling a little bit financially with Karis LeVert and prayers up to Karis LeVert. Hopefully everything works out with his kidney Indiana, issue that yep. we read about today. Yep. But like I thought he was a really good and I still do. I think he's a very good player. He's about as good as Eladipo plus or minus. I think they're about the same player. He's under contract for two more years after this one at about 18 million apiece. And to trade him for Oladipo, who's had injury issues, he's an unrestricted free agent. Maybe you can get something for him at trade deadline, but maybe that was financially motivated. We're like, you know what? I don't want to pay this guy $18 million if we're not going to be really good. Maybe I'll move him, get Oladipo so I get off his money. Maybe I can just get a pick or an expiring deal and some picks for Oladipo at trade deadline. Maybe a sign and trade at the end of the year, you know, bring back some picks and I don't have to bring back any money. It's interesting though. Like, I mean, may, I have no idea, but you read about it. You know, I read ESPN and a couple other um, 
publications and websites had that story during the summer how he was struggling i'm just not sure but with cleveland cleveland and indiana i think make out the best they get players indiana for, for sure. almost nothing yeah i think yeah. indiana made a genius move yeah and he's come up with what was the issue with him that just got flagged Karis LeVert has a kidney. He he got a mass in his kidney. Not sure. They didn't really they're not really releasing too much information, but they just found it in the in the physical. You know, obviously you gotta take a physical as you know when you get traded. So um it came up and it red flag. They actually redid the deal and uh Brooklyn ended up um sending over, I think, two point four million dollars in the deal. You know, same deal that doesn't really get affected, but they brought, you know, you I think you could send up to three million in a deal. I think they put two point four going to Indiana in the deal. Yeah, well hopefully he gets healthy. I think I think it's a great move for Indiana. It helps their books a little bit. The rumor is that even even a healthy Oladipo wasn't going to stay in Indiana anyway and he's not healthy right now. So I think it's a no brainer for them. But um interesting trade. Anyway, from from that we had some the hardened comments out of the door from Houston, I found um, pretty interesting. He basically just, I mean, he was being honest. You can't fault too much, but I, I guess for those that aren't aware, he said something along the lines of, I just don't have enough here to win. What are we doing? Just get me out of here. This roster's no good. Basically just said, I'm on a shit team. Get me out of here. And the voice of reason was the Marcus Cousins came out funnily enough <laughs> and was like, you know, no one in this locker room has ever done anything to James. It's unfair treating, treating us like this and, putting us as a scapegoat. So I find that funny just because it's DeMarcus. He's usually on the other end of being the, the calm guy. But um, yeah, I think the hardened thing for me is interesting. He was given, as we mentioned earlier, he was given the complete keys to that team for five, six, seven years. Had Dwight got him out of there, had numerous players that he didn't like. He was basically the GM from from what I heard. But even off, off, the, off the court, you know, there was rumors that he would on off days, he would use the owner's private jet to fly to Cabo, which then pissed off Russell Westbrook, who was like, what the hell's going on? So he's then gone and asked for a trade because I guess Houston thought they would try to keep Russ long-term knowing that James is eventually going to want out. And then it ended up alienating Russ as well. But I guess you just have to be careful, you know, as, a, as an owner and all that. The superstars do deserve, like we always always say, a lot more hugs than the than the regular Joes. But I think the line is probably giving the the team the private owner jet to to James to go on party, you know, in between games. I don't think that that would go down too well, even on the great teams. Yeah, I, I think look, great players, you know, franchise players are going to get more perks than most, right? But I think there has to be a few things that even with a great player, that has to be sort of a line drawn in the sand. Say, you know, look. You got to be on time. You got to compete, and you got to have respect for the organization, respect for the people inside of it. You know your teammates, the people in the organization. You got to be a pro, and I just think that doing those things, you know, could anger anybody. And to be able to have that, it gets around your locker room quickly. It spreads, and it's a little animosity. Look, I don't have many problems. What he said. You know, and, and it's funny, Demarcus Cousins, you know, talking to being the voice of reason is like me telling you, Bogues, you got to drink more green smoothies with your diet. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's just sort of something that doesn't happen. Um, but like, I, I just think that I had no problem saying, look, I just didn't have enough. Like, I, I, I guess it comes, it comes across as being disrespectful and maybe in a part it is. Look, we all want honesty until the, the truth's told, right? And then everybody's bullshit that you're telling them the truth. But my biggest problem with what he said was, I did everything I could for Houston. In a part, that's right. I mean, if you look at his numbers, they're ridiculous. One number, is, one number that I looked up that was unbelievable, I, I don't think it's ever been done, six straight years of 10 or more free throws attempted a game. 
you know, going on seven, he's only averaging seven and a half this year. The average lead that he had, Bogues, was something like a hundred. He's taken from the number one to the number two in those six years. He's averaged 157 more makes than the number two guy and 137 more takes than the second guy that, you know, in, in a six year span. And you wonder why he scores what he does. But when he said, I did everything I, do, I could for Houston, well, he didn't. He came in out of shape. You know, if he wanted a trade and he wanted to get out of that city and he's been there so long and he's done so much for them and they've done a lot for him, just say, hey, look, guys, I want out. I want to make this like a, a good split. I'm going to come in in shape. I'm going to, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to do whatever you need me to do, but I need to get out of here probably by the beginning of the year, if not by also by a trade deadline. And I'll do everything you need to do. I'll be a, a perfect citizen. Just do this. Well, what does he do? He's late goes to a uh, birthday party, the whole mask thing, the no mask thing, going to parties, you know, and it just, he didn't do everything he could. He, 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 he sort of put them in a tough spot with the trade. His trade value was sort of fluctuating. I mean, they did make a good deal at the end of the day, but he didn't do everything he, he could do for Houston because if he did and he respected that relationship, that partnership that they had, he would have said, look, I'm going to do everything in my power. We're going to keep it quiet. We're going to get, you know, you could trade me, shop me. Here are the teams that I'd like to go to. But he didn't. And I think that's the biggest problem with what he said. Yeah, a bit hypocritical, definitely. And and yeah, my comment around going to Carbo on his off days, that wasn't really the issue. Some people might think, well, what's a big deal if he's back? He'd show up late the next day. Flights would be delayed sometimes. You know, he'd show up late to film sessions and team meetings. I think that's when guys in the locker room were, were a little bit fired up. But as of as of recording, Brooklyn just just played Orlando and he had a fantastic first game there. I think um, he had a double-double and was really distributing the ball very well. We didn't see a lot of that in Houston. Uh, he would after about 15 dribbles, but it's the first time in a long time I've seen James come off an isolation with two or three dribbles and make that quick pass. And I guess it helps having KD to throw it to, but uh, they got the first win. We've got Kyrie. I mean, he's now rumored to be coming back and I think he was fined 40K plus his salary for missed games. So I think that's a bit of a wake-up call. There's there's rumors that he's quarantining and he should be back any day now on that team. So it's, it's good to have him back. Yeah, of course. I mean, of course, he's he's all right to go after the trade goes through, right? Like, you know, that's usually how it works. But for sure. And I think James, it's funny, in Oklahoma City, I thought he was a great passer. I thought he had great vision and he would make great passes. I think in Houston, when he was allowed to just be that ISO, a walking ISO guy, you didn't see it as much. You did, but you didn't. You, know, you saw the dribble, 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 and you saw the, you know, the lobs at the end and, and things. And I think the way the roster was constructed, it was sort of like an ugly style of basketball it was like watching two guys dribble around you know they take turns three other people like one guy's getting his taxes done you know one guy's meditating in the corner waiting for that pass out at the last second for yeah, that last second bomb that has to be shot with one on the shot clock if they didn't get an you know if harden or westbrook or harden or, or whoever didn't get the shot that they wanted but you know it's constructed sort of like philly was with iverson it was like three or four guys watching him dribble around and make a play if they didn't he'd pass it up and now that he's got other weapons on his team, and I think with the pressure of like all that's being said about the way he plays and what he's been doing, maybe he'll be like, I don't really believe in change. I think people revert back to who they really are, but I think maybe he'll pass, you know, he could pass a little bit more. He's got the weapons on the floor. The Irving thing will be interesting. Bogues, I think you couldn't bring one guy off the bench, right? No way. No, forget yeah, that. Yeah, no, no, to no. be able to... 
Because that their biggest problem is going to be subbing out. You probably have to sub early and then sort of keep two of those guys on the floor. One of those three will sub early. Um, probably, yeah. you know, James or Kyrie will sub early. Then when KD comes out, they'll, they'll end up rotating it around like that strategically. But yeah, I think it's a conversation that Nash is going to have to have with all three of them in the room. Like, hey, any given possession, two of you guys are going to be role players. You know, two of you guys are going to be spot-up shooters at times, and that's just the reality of it. And, and, you know, you guys have signed here to try and win a championship. I'd almost print out an article which each, each of them saying that. You know, we're all we're all in this together, and we're going to do the right thing and say, well, I don't want to see that body language or that pouting that if you don't get the last shot or you get looked off because James takes an extra dribble or whatever it is, we just got to get on with things. So it will be interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. It will be popcorn for us sitting back and watching. But we'll segue that into – we had a conversation about how many – how many teams in the NBA have a true non-negotiable culture left in the NBA? And and we we didn't come up with very many. Mm-hmm. The three that we came up pretty much off the bat was OKC, Miami, and San Antonio, where it was there's a line in the sand and you don't cross it. You know, you don't even try to get close to it with those guys because there's going to be repercussions and, and they'll either trade you or not play you or suspend you, right? Right. Second tier for me was Boston. Golden State was first tier. The second time I was there, it's it's kind of laxed a little bit, and that's that's not a knock on Golden State. That's just once you're winning championships and you're there late, you know, you're playing till June every year. Things get lax with guys showing up late and all that kind of stuff. That's just the way it goes, right? With with winning championships, but I think Golden State second tier. I'd probably almost have Houston in there. I still got to give them a bit more time, but just with the way that they've gone. Try to go young and 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 try to get things moving in the right direction. That could be a possibility. It'll be interesting to see if there's issues with John Wall, Demarcus moving forward, how they handle them. But other than that, I'm kind of clutching straws. Um, what about you? Yeah, I'm I'm all for Boston. I worked for Danny Ainge for you know a few years, you know, a, a, a while back, and just the integrity that he has. I mean, he doesn't have much integrity when you're trying to trade with him. He'll try to he'll try to rob you blind. But like as far as you know, internal things. I think the ownership does a great job and he does a great job from that. I don't know Brad Stevens at all. Um, Golden State, hey, look, you would know more than most. The the thing about it is like those other teams that we mentioned on top, those three teams sort of made it through multiple generations of players. So remember Ginobili, Parker, you know, Duncan, and then they graduated from that with like Kawhi, DeMar DeRozan, or Marcus Aldridge, and they kept that sort of model of being having a culture together. So so same thing with my Miami, same thing with Oklahoma City. You know, they just keep changing their roster, but sort of keep the same values. I wouldn't say Houston going forward, maybe. I, like I said before, I think Steven Silas is one of the smartest coaches I've ever been around. Um, you know, the great guy and what they're doing is, you know, trying to do what they're trying to do. I can't say that going like in the past. I mean, look what they did for, you know, look for Harden, holding up planes. You, know, you, you read those stories about, you know, holding up planes, letting them come late. You know, management firing D'Antoni's staff without even talking to D'Antoni about it. Um, you know, that's not a good culture. I think for good culture, ownership, management, and coach are all on the same page. They have a respect for the rules of the organization. You know, everything's done sort of internally. And I, I just don't see that out of Houston right now. Maybe going forward, but it's tough. You know, those three up top, it doesn't matter if you're the best player or the worst player. Off the court, everybody's treated the same. On the court, different. Obviously, the best player gets more, you know, sort of gets more action. But off the court, everything's done the same. You're late 
It doesn't matter if you're the best player, worst player, you, you get fined or what have you. You know, it's it's a tough thing to do in the NBA because you don't you want to keep your superstars happy. You, you might look the other way, although the twelfth guy does it. You're gonna find them, you know, and get in their shit. It's a little bit tough, and it's a little bit. That's why, I like, what good culture? I think cultures. I, I say this, Bogues. There are two types of teams out there. There are teams that have culture, and there's teams that have signs in the locker room that tells you that they have culture. Because yeah. it's you know the teams that have culture don't even talk about it; they just have it. You know, and you look at San Antonio and Miami as two prime examples. OKC, not so much, but even them to an extent that there's not a whole lot of movement from coaching, yeah, positions. You know, um, because I think the coaches know, you know, if we start catering towards superstars, we're going to get fired, and the GM's going to get fired, and it's just going to be a poisonous environment. And you saw that with Kawhi. The rumors were with San Antonio that, like you said, he he was asking for perks. Can my fr- can my boy travel? Can my trainer travel on the team playing? Can can I? Do- I'm a superstar. See other teams doing it, and they're like, "Yeah, we don't give a shit. We're not doing that here." And that's what basically ended that relationship. I don't think it was so much as what was reported around, you know, the training staff misdiagnosed him and all that. I think it was all the extra stuff that he saw Kobe was getting and LeBron was getting that he wasn't getting, and and that that hurt the relationship. One we one we probably missed for seconds here might be Utah as well. I'm not sure about the situation now, but. Yeah, Joe Ingles, good friend of mine, he says it's a it's a really strong culture there, and what they've historically built there has continued. And I think I think a lot in your culture has to do with longevity, with everybody being together, regardless of like how good or, or not so good your team's doing. Um, the two teams up top, obviously, look. I mean, look at Pop. You know, look at Pop and management. They've stayed together for you know forever, over twenty years. You've got you know Pat Riley. You know, in Spolstra, they've been together a long time. You know, even in, in Dallas, even though we didn't mention them up top, Carlisle, Nelson, those guys have been together. There's not a lot of movement there. And I think that starts with your ownership working through the bad times as well as the good times. In Oklahoma City, they've had, you know, they've had a lot of movement with their coaches for one reason or another. But that, you know, that, that's sort of doing the same thing over and over and over again, regardless of how good or not so good your team is. It's a different, it's a, you know, I think that's what separates really good culture teams to teams that don't really have it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a twist to this was something else that I thought about was you look at these GM moneyball kind of quote unquote types that were geniuses. I mean, Daryl Morey was one of them. He was touted as that guy that, that kind of, could put a roster together with all these underrated players, but then they end up getting a big gym job like like Houston. And this is a knock on Moray, but he did what he had to do. But then they just go big three or, or signing superstars. And it's, it kind of feels the same as what Brooklyn's doing now. You know, Sean Marks was a highly touted front office guy that got handpicked by Brooklyn, former Spurs guy, big on culture and all that stuff. And now it seems like, well, we're just going to do it. We're, we're going to put a big three together and no disrespect to any of them. They've, they've done exactly what they're told to do by their ownership group and whatnot. But I feel like their rosters that kind of my four-year-old son could put together, it's like, who are the three best players in the league? Oh, let's get them. You know what I mean? And it's, it, I just found it interesting because it's, you know, the, those, those are the GMs that are big on the analytics and the breakdown and if we can get this role player to just do this a little bit different or this role player can turn into a second tier star that's kind of the feel you got from those guys but then when they got the head the head spot it was like oh let's just get the biggest names in the game i think i don't care who you are ownership management everybody's addicted to action bogues you know i think uh, on the on the bottom line you try to draft you try to acquire picks you know, you build, you you know, maybe you're lucky like Oklahoma City and you had those three studs that you had, 
but most picks don't end up like that. They end up like Brooklyn's, you know, Allen, Levert, uh, Joe Harris, uh, you know, Dimwitty, all those guys are good players, but they're only going to take you so far. So you package them in for these big three deals and, that, and that's it. And, and then everybody's addicted to action. Ownership's like, look, if we get a chance to get this guy, yeah, let's get him. And you're going to mortgage your whole future over it. You know, look at like Boston when they when they put the big three together, they were they were sort of sinking. They had Al Jefferson and Paul Pierce. They weren't winning. They had some young guys that they've developed, and then they sort of mortgaged most of their assets together based around Al Jefferson. You know, to get uh, to get Covering Garnett, and then they got Ray Allen, and they made it made it work. But I'll tell you what, Bogues on an, on another front, I think in the last two years in the NBA. They've taught you any contract is tradable. Any con we always talk about ah, oh, it's the worst deal in the league. Like this word deal is the worst deal in the league. I think that you could go on Amazon right now, buy a vacuum cleaner, give it a max contract, and if you have enough pick swaps and unprotected picks, a GM would trade you for it. <laughs> you know, if you could throw it to a deal together that's good enough, you could look at like Westbrook's deal. I mean, Westbrook's deal is 41, 44, 47. No knock against Westbrook, but that's a lot of money. You saw you know, Harden's deal get traded. You saw John, uh, John Wall's getting 41, 44, 47, same as Westbrook, you know, and that it's crazy. That like we always say, oh, this is untradeable contract. He'll be there forever, and all these fucking guys get traded. Chris Paul's contract, you know, that they thought was untradeable because of the you know his age versus the money, and all these guys are getting traded. It's crazy that you know if you have enough, like I said, if you have enough pick swaps, if you have enough uh, draft picks, you can get it done. It's uh, it's nuts. But this Brooklyn thing, you know, Brooklyn. Has you know has that before where they traded Gar- for Garnett into Boston, where they always thought those picks are going to be late picks, and they ended up you know on those pick swaps, they ended up being um, I think Jason Tatum, Brown. I think they got Tatum and Brown off the, off those picks and pick swaps. Yeah. So you never know, like you said, the end of those deals. Same thing. Oklahoma City is going to cash in on this Houston thing if that goes south because they get a lot of their picks in the Paul and Westbrook deals. Yeah, exactly. It is interesting. And and I guess as a young fellow following the NBA um, and for just a general fan of the NBA, you sometimes – I used to look at trades as a young kid and be like, what the hell? That makes no sense. And it wasn't as, as rampant back in the 90s and 2000s. But once you play in the league and you're involved in it, you realize that a lot of stuff isn't just player for player. I mean, I don't know how many trades today would just simply be about player player. It's it's like you said, it's it's dumping someone's salary. It's bringing back some picks for the future. It's cleaning house. It's win now if you're Brooklyn and we'll take extra salary. Um, you look at what Golden State did with Ubre. They, they bring in him and it costs them, it ends up costing them two or three years. Yeah, more, more than his contract. So for the average fan out there listening, don't always think that, okay, they've traded this player for that player and you're like, oh, they got screwed. He's a way better player. Sometimes you got to look at the details of those trades to figure out exactly what's going on. And I think with these Pittsburghs with Houston, they're going to need a couple to get off a of Wall's contract. You know that's going to go bad. You know, right now, it's okay. It's going good. I'm not, what'd you call yourself? Bogodomus? What, what'd you call yourself? <laughs> I can't even remember. I'm not you. I'm not a, a yeah, I'm not a future uh, a, a fortune teller like you, but you know that's probably going to go bad. And that's the thing too. Nostrobogus, Nostrobogus. Nostrobogus, my fault, my fault. <laughs> but like why if you're Houston, if you knew the thing was going to go south? Cuz you didn't make this deal the 4 months ago. Like you knew that Harden wanted to leave. 
why not just keep Westbrook? Well, I think they instead of because like, I had to cut you off, but I think they I think they thought they still had a chance to keep James at one point, and I think with all the bullshit James was doing, this is the read I got from what I've read. Mm-hmm. Russ was like, "Get me out of here." Mid season last year, he was like, "Get me out of here." Like, look, st- you know, stay patient. We'll figure something out. They didn't trade him last season before the deadline with all the COVID stuff yeah. and everything going on. Then it got to the off season and Russ was like, get me out of here ASAP. I do not want to be here. And then they thought, okay, if we can move him, get John Wall in, maybe we can we can get James Harden off that ledge. And I think it all just blew up in their face. Yeah, obviously, I don't know the inside on it. And if that was the case, then yeah. But to get John Wall, oof. I mean, Westbrook, at least he competes every night. There's no sort of baggage off the court. You know, John Wall can't get out of his own way. Injury, you know, problems off the court, disciplinary stuff. You know, so maybe this changes him. Who knows? <laughs> gang signs, whatever else. Yeah, he's gang up. signs. <laughs> he did those at one yeah. point. Got into it with JJ Barea when you were there. I think that was pretty funny <laughs> back in the day. The little fellow was ready to, bu- you know, jump up and bite his ankles. You, you know, yeah, he little was fellow was a little that. fired up. Yeah, no doubt. All right, moving on. So we we go. Let's do the COVID follow up. We we broke some pretty good news. Didn't get any credit pro. Didn't get any citations from ESPN or Woj or all these. Um, Big time people, which means we're doing the right thing. I think there's a bit of bit of people out there that might be scared of citus. So we've both heard that the MBPA is heavily pushing back on the two guest rule. They still haven't announced exactly what's going on with that. I believe there was a board of governors meeting, and they've put in extra protocol around all the all the kind of theatrical stuff that you can see. But we haven't really heard much on the two guest rule. But I know the MBPA for a fact is you've heard the same thing. Is is that's that's a really kind of touchy point for them. Yeah, I mean, it's touchy for the players because they, obviously they, you know, I will probably go into the George Hill's comments later, but like, you know, they feel as though that they they don't want to be treated like children. They don't want to be treated like, you know, like it's jail on the road where you can't do anything and, you know, you're, you're boggled down there. Obviously, they're not used to that in their regular life pre-COVID. But like we talked about last time, man. It's, look out your window. Yeah. Yeah, look out your window. I mean, it's tough, man. Uh, everybody's going through it and you know you're seeing these cases go up you're seeing teams getting infected you're seeing these games get postponed like we said three or four days to you know to play video games or do whatever i mean uh, yeah you're not going to see people but who cares man i mean this thing's going to head either towards you know uh, uh, i don't think they'll ever cancel the season but it's probably going to head towards a bubble in my opinion not that i know anything or have any information but that's the only way that like no 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 cases testing you know, steady rules that everybody's going to follow. I would probably think, and I've heard from a few players on this, that they think they're probably going to do three regional bubbles of 10 teams if they're going to have a bubble at all because they would never do that one bubble again, but the three regional bubbles, 10 teams, and then you sort of have like a week off and then you quarantine and then you switch them up, you know, uh, for three bubbles. They're thinking that's probably going to be that, but who knows? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I know the bubble was not uh, popular with the players for obvious reasons because the bubble and restricted freedom and you felt like you were kind of in a in a training camp for, for three or four months, but it was what had to be done. I know a lot of players mentioned um, mental health was at a low. The MBPA did surveys in the bubble and it all came back with pretty low numbers, but it is interesting. You look at, not to go off topic, but here in Melbourne now, the Australian Open tennis is about to start. I'm not sure if you're familiar with my home state of Victoria, which is the state has actually somewhat closed the borders to its own residents that were in hotspots. So Brisbane was a hotspot last week. If you were in Brisbane, you couldn't come back to your house. They wouldn't let you in. You couldn't even come to quarantine. Whereas on the flip side, they've let 
tennis players on these flights. Some of them have now been reported as having COVID getting on those flights and allowed them into the state. But they're saying, oh, well, we're, we're, we're quarantining them. It's really strict. It's 14 days in the hotel room. But I think where sport has to be careful, you need that outlet. So you want this argument, you want sport to go on because it gives people an outlet from their, all the bullshit going on in the world. But if it starts going too much where there's too many perks and, you know, like the NBA, for instance, the two guests rule and they're flying around different cities and somewhat spreading it if they have it, I think your everyday people are going to start to get angrier and angrier. And I think that's not a society that we want. Yeah, Bogues, I was watching um, Dallas and Milwaukee last night and I had a couple of friends tell me the same thing. But Jeff Van Gundy was talking about, you know, how they were worried about blood on a jersey i think luca had some blood in his jersey and he was saying i can't believe in a pandemic they're worrying about that but yet they're going through all this testing and things yet they're playing against each other rubbing on each other coughing on each other playing a game every night and that's the thing like that's the biggest thing for covid for me because you're not in a bubble you don't know who has it who doesn't until after they get tested like say a player makes contact with like nine of the uh, 15 players on the bench, nine out of 15 of their opponents, like through contact or what have you. And then they get COVID. Wouldn't you, you know, I mean, it's it just, it's so, so many moving parts without a bubble to me. And I know it's not a popular thing, but look, like we told, like we said before, they're making millions of dollars and it, it, it sucks because like they used to having all this freedom to do whatever they want, but no one has freedom. Johnny Coppinger down the streets making, you know, an $8 an hour trying to feed his kids. He's got, he's got to take four jobs just to put a, ro- a, a shitty roof on his head, he, over his head. You think that they, they're, they're going to feel bad for you about not having visitors in the road or having to sort of bubble up? It's, I, I get it. Like, like I said, I, I don't want to tell somebody how to feel, but you got to go through the reality with this thing and, and, and how, how important it is and how dangerous this whole situation is. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the governments have a lot, left a lot to be desired with the way they handle it, state to state, country to country, and that, that kind of pours gasoline on the fire. But I think, like, like we said, you got to look out the window and even. You know, even for the people that don't think the virus is a serious, it's still the perception of of having athletes that are making forty, fifty million dollars a year flying around when, you know, there's states all around the world, the states in the US, there's places in Australia where there's lockdowns where you can't leave your house for more than an hour. So that's where yeah, you have that that kind of there'll be a lot of contempt for for professional athletes. Um but the George Hill comments were were interesting. So I'll read those out real quick. I guess he was asked about you know, the 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 guess the two guess rule and all that kind of stuff. And the, the quote went, I'm a grown man, so I'm going to do what I want to do. If I want to go and see my family, I'm going to go see my family. They can't tell me I have to stay in the room 24-7. If it's that serious, then maybe we shouldn't be playing. It's life. No one's going to be able to just cancel their whole life for this game. So, I mean, most people that, that read that aren't going to be sympathetic. I just don't think it's I like his honesty and that's how he feels. Fantastic. But I think in, in the current landscape that we're dealing with, there will be a lot of people that that, that just switch off. Yeah. I, I, they're not going to get a lot of sympathy from the American public or the global public, especially the ones going through it in hot zones and shutdowns and losing businesses and things. And uh, shout out to Barstool Sports, by the way, with that $25 million they raised for the small businesses. That's been awesome. I'm sorry. I just read that. Uh, you know, We've been reading that. And, He's done a great job. It's, it's unreal. Those guys are unreal. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. But back to George, he has uh, obviously the right to feel how he wants to feel. And any player, any coach, anybody that that's working in the league, look, no one's begging you to work. You know, if you if you feel as though it's affecting your life, then step away from it for a little while and 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 deal with what you want to deal with. But 
if everybody's getting paid and everybody's sort of to keep this gravy train rolling, if there's like eight or nine different rules, more rules that you have to follow, that's just sort of out of your day to day and you have to sort of make some type of, you know, compromise for it, you're going to have to do it. Or look, just say, look, I don't, I'll, I'll take a hiatus for a while. You could find me, you could get, take my money or whatever for a while until this thing gets back to normal. Maybe we'll just play next year. But like, if, if everybody wants to, how do you expect, you, can't have both. you expect just to- sh- You can't have both. You can't have, yeah. you can't have the, the money. And I understand sports leagues that have gotten the okay from governments all around the world here in Australia and America. The sports leagues that get the okay have, they put a bunch of you need to do, you know, the document's probably 50 pages long of all the shit you need to do. Yeah. Um, even 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 on camera, like the social distancing of the bench has probably come from government and the NBA going over the top to make sure, hey, we're trying to do everything right, you know, don't shut us down. And um, I guess for, from George Hill's point of view, his comments are honest, but at the same time, you can't make that money and, and, and not abide by those rules because the league, the government will shut those down, especially if people start firing up. But that leads to, there was also rumors that there could be a hiatus or a pause. You know, these cases are spiking. There's more and more, there's another game that's postponed today because of, because of cases. My argument with the pause, a two-week pause, three-week pause is if you pause NBA players right now, I know we discussed that you were kind of like, thinking it might be an okay thing. So it might be the first thing we disagree on. But I think the pause is is more dangerous because those players will then go home to wherever they're from or, or the city that they're, that they're based in. You know they're not going to stay in their rooms. You know they're not going to stay in their apartments or their houses. They're going to still go get their workouts in. They're still going to go get their lunch, their dinner. They're still going to go out in town and, and the single guys are going to go out to the clubs and whatever. And I think- I think it might even cause more of a of a shitstorm. You bring those guys back in two or three weeks later to start again. I think you'll have more people with COVID than not. That's just that's how I feel about it. Yeah, and I talk to people in the league, and they're like, well, "Wait, maybe we should just wait for a vaccine." I'm like, "Look, if you take a, a vaccine, is not a fucking antidote. This ain't like this ain't Indiana fucking Jones, right? Like, you're not just gonna have an antidote, and this thing's gonna go away. Like, you're gonna still have to mask up. You're gonna still have to distance. You're gonna still have people. They don't know if you can get them infe- and take the vaccine and, and infect somebody else. Like, you're this world is still gonna be fucked up for a long time on this thing, you know. And yeah, I guess you know from chain. You're right. We didn't really didn't agree on this at first, but now that I'm thinking about it, like this this problem's still gonna be here in two weeks, a month, two months, and then like you said, not everybody's gonna abide by the rules. And like I told you before, I don't trust anybody on this thing. I don't trust people just to hold the line and sort of you know follow the rules when nobody's looking. Yeah, when there's a camera on and you're on national fucking TV, everybody's gonna wear a mask and everybody's gonna be great. I want to see what they're doing with no camera. And, you know, no one's looking. Are they going out? Are they st- going to a public bathroom? The amount of people that I see come out of the cubicle <laughs> and walk straight out. <laughs> and I'm like, look yeah. at them. Like, I'll, I'll do that thing where I'll look at them, look at the cubicle, look back at them, look at the sink where I'm washing my hands and be like, like, what? Like, are you going to wash your hands, dude? Like, so, I mean, if, if this virus brings one positive, I think it's, I hope people are washing their hands more, you know, just, just like it's, oh, it's just, it's disgusting. Yeah. I've seen somebody drop seven pounds and then walk right past that sink when they got out of the stall. And I've, you know, I've been around a lot of those people. And, and even I'm say like, hello to you, like, hey, how you, how you going? And just keep walking, just like what? <laughs> yeah, they just keep going, and they try to give you a high fucking five too, like they, like yeah, you know, like they just, like they just won the fucking Super Bowl. Yeah, I said, yeah, go to fucking Disneyland without me, you asshole. Get the yeah. fuck away from me with your shitty hands. Yeah, yeah. All right, we're gonna move on to Q and A. Before we do, give us a little bit of plug about your business, Hoop Consultants, and and how you started it and what you're doing. Yeah, so about 10 years ago when I was working with Kobe, 
I decided it's like, I know I'm going to be in basketball. I'm still going to work in basketball, coach and whatnot, but I wanted to help players, coaches, and scouts sort of educate themselves and sort of educate themselves on just giving, giving them sort of advice on how to be a better player or how to be a better coach or how to, you know, sort of make it in the scouting industry, playing in a coaching industry, you know, that, that uh, low level European player that wants to like make, you know, try to make, you know, money overseas, like how to pick an agent, how to do all that. So I just sort of really like helping people. And I think with when I was with Dallas and player development, like interviewing like 1,400 interns that are trying to get into coaching and giving them interviews and talking to them and giving them some career advice, even if I wasn't going to hire that person, that sort of really gets me going as far as like wanting to help people and wanting to help players and coaches. So my website's sort of set up for, you know, I do a lot of blog posting and I do a lot of videos where I just like break down players' games. But, you know, I sell books and things, but I also do virtual consultations where over Zoom, any player, coach, or or scout from, you know, any level, uh, any age will call me, ask for advice. You know, I got a bunch of EuroLeague coaches. I got a bunch of college kids, a bunch of high school kids that signed up and I talk to on a weekly basis. So, you know, I just want to help people. And, you know, I, I don't think, I think... It's sexy to help the great players, but the average players that need it, you know, that that just need direction and don't really get great direction. They might be working with a trainer that's working, you know, working with them on the, you know, 18 step back moves, but they don't really do anything simple that's going to help, you know, Johnny Epstein make his JV team or varsity team or or get better. So, yeah, so my website's hoopconsultants.com. Like I said, I, I help players from all different levels. And I've been blessed to be able to look like the mutant that I am and being in pro basketball for that long. And I think that, you know, I, I sort of took a different path than most. And I just want to share that with anybody, you know, with the players that I've helped or the coaches that I've helped or, or anybody that's trying to get into scouting. Yeah, and for anyone out there that want to look that up, I mean, pro's journey has been unique in itself because he's seen all different facets of the NBA, professional, overseas. So check out Hoop Consultants on at Hoop Consultants on um, Twitter and Facebook and HoopConsultants.com. So before we start, you tweeted out a fucking great video of Connor Henry in a game <laughs> in a huddle. Can you can you elaborate? Because I see that guy around. I know he's a bot he was a Celtic when I was a young kid, but like I see him, he was a scout for a while in the league and I'll see him real quiet, like mild mannered dude when you talk to him. But that was definitely not mild-mannered, and I, you've got to fucking talk to me about what you think. Yeah, so he's the head coach of the Adelaide 36ers, first-year head coach with Adelaide. He's co- I think he coached Perth for five or six years ago, but um, they've got a pretty good roster, pretty decent, and they're playing um, they're playing Melbourne United, who are title favorites. And they went in the game the whole half. I watched I watched parts of the game, and I watched that, that interview, and then um, the NBL does this thing where they – they mic up the coaches real time in the huddle, <laughs> which at times backfires, <laughs> and they get a lot of complaints from from Karens and and these crazy mums that um, don't like hearing swearing. But yeah, he basically just said, "Excuse the language, but you know we're over dribbling." And he starts off all calm, and we come off the pick and roll and throw it to the pop guy. You over dribble, then you over dribble, then I over dribble, then you fucking over dribble, and you haven't even played, and just just went crazy and it's i mean the league doesn't like it because of the swearing but i think it's great content i think it's raw it's it's what a huddle is you know and i know for tv you're supposed to edit out the f bombs and they they can't do it cuz it's real time but it's become it's become a meme now on the internet it's got i think it was at a million views at one point people are uh are using that as the the Brooklyn timeout speech <laughs> right now? I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> so someone's using it. Yeah, that's it. great. So yeah, I mean, it's 
But you know what, folks? That's honest. That's honesty. Like some coaches, anytime a camera's on them, they're like, they're like, you know, they're oh, all man, proper, don't get me started. Like, don't get me started. When, yeah. when people, when coaches and players are mic'd up in the NBA, I, I, I get a bucket and I vomit. Yeah. It's just the complete opposite. They know they're mic'd up and it's just, it's it's Hollywood. And that's why, that's why I say Hollywood yeah. NBA a lot. And I totally agree with you. And I love that dude, man. That's a, that's a great fucking video. I love it. Got a guy with the questions, man. My so, bad. yeah, just quickly, the NBA to get started. There's been two games. My team, the Sydney Kings, went down by a point yesterday in a, a late controversial call, which um, could have went either way, and they ended up losing that one in a, in a really good up-and-down close game. And then Melbourne blew out Adelaide in that second half of their game where we saw Connor Henry go crazy. There's a few more games today, and then we'll probably touch on that a bit more once um, we've got a week or two under our belt with the NBL. But moving on to the Q&A. First off, just a disclaimer, we've got a few people firing up that their question does not get asked. Look, I'm the emperor. I'm the dictator. I, I pick the questions for the most part, so you're going to have to deal with it. Uh, we, we get anywhere up to 100 questions when we put out the posts. So do the math. Six from 100. What's that, bro? 6%? <laughs> yeah, 6%. That's, that's basically the revenue split on this podcast from you to me. <laughs> you got to take the losses too then if you want the, if you want the revenue. But- uh, <laughs> Yeah, look, we're trying to trying to get through as many as we can. So if we don't answer yours, we appreciate the fired up emails. It means you care, but at the same time, unlucky. Keep trying next week. So we'll get on to the first one. Loving the podcast, et cetera, et cetera. Why do you think so many junior Aussie basketball players make great AFL football players? So AFL is Australian rules football here, pro. Um, pretty intense, crazy game. He cites Scott Penelbury, Bontempelli, and a few other players that play, superstars. What age do you think those decisions start being put on a junior. We're basically saying when you need to pick one sport and any pro, anything similar in the US when athletes need to make their sport, their choice, essentially one. And I think in Australia, I think probably 13, 14, you probably need to really start going into whatever you're going to do. I think it's very hard to get to 16, 17, still playing both sports and not knowing which one you want to do. There are people that have done it. Scott Pendlebury definitely is one. There's, there's been numerous guys on record, but I think spending time on both equally long-term 16, 17 isn't good. I think it. I think it's actually a positive at 11, 12, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Like there's a lot of players that play soccer that are basketball players, Joel Embiid. I think, it, I think those different sports help footwork and hand-eye coordination but i think once it becomes you know you become into really get into the grind of trying to become you know an adolescence to a teenager to a professional i think 13 14 you kind of need to lock in that decision what do you think bro yeah i've seen both sides of it right i've seen like uh pat Connaughton that plays from milwaukee he's actually a, a first round pick in baseball you know um played both baseball and basketball you know throughout his high school career uh, went to notre dame same thing. I think it's good, like you said, like soccer's good. Like I know Steve Nash played it, you know, it was great for his hand-eye, really helped his his game. I think up to high school, all the way through high school wouldn't be bad. And then, although then you get a little bit pressure of colleges and you need to go to one sport to sort of, you know, to try to really help yourself in, in recruiting and, and whatnot. I would say that I don't know, man. I've seen it on both ends, but I, I would say throughout high school is fine. But once you get to college, I think you gotta. I think I would. I would sort of go to about seventeen, and then sort of make a decision of what I'm really going to put my time into. Unless the two sports are way different season, and like if you're a track and you could play outdoor track and basketball or whatnot. But I don't know. I just think it depends. That you know, people say it's bad to go with the one sport too early and just go like have a trainer and just play one sport. But I don't know. I, I think it depends on the player and what they want to do. 
But I, I think you can go all the way up if you want to play a couple of sports. Like Danny Ainge. Danny Ainge was like an All-American in baseball, basketball, and football in high school. Like, you know, you, you hear these stories of players playing all the way up. And he, and he also got drafted in baseball while he played basketball. So, I don't know. I see I seen it differently. Yeah, there's no right or wrong way. It's just up to the individual, I guess. But um, yeah. Nate Robinson was the other one, right? I think he played college football and basketball, didn't he? Did he play football as well when he was there? I think for a year or two. I think for a year or two he did. And then tried some yeah. boxing. That didn't work out too well. Uh, yeah, he tried He tried <laughs> boxing like I tried dieting last week. <laughs> he got knocked on our asses. Thanks for your question there. That was Stuart Dangerfield from Bentley in Victoria, near where I grew up. So thanks for that. Next question, loving the podcast so far and your Twitter account. Question, not 100% basketball related. You spent most of half your life living in the USA and still managed to keep the Aussie accent. What's your secret considering Ben Simmons and Josh Green have been there for a comparative two minutes and theirs is gone? So, Pro, one thing Australians hate is when Australians go to America and have an American accent within a year or two. So, I always was cognizant of that. <laughs> I was always cognizant yeah, of not- I love co- that fucking accent. But what was funny is I'd get back, I'd still get back to Australia at times. I'd still say certain words kind of with an American twang just because, you know, let's, let's say I'm at a restaurant, we say tomato sauce, Americans say ketchup. So- Things like that, because I lived over there for so long, instead of going to a restaurant in America and having the waitress say, huh, huh, like I have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. Yeah. I obviously adapted, but then that meant when I came home for a month out of the 12 months, I'm around my boys or my friends or whatever, and I might say something and then they're just, they're just breaking my nuts, you know, yeah, you're American, listen to you, you know, so- it's an interesting thing. I think Ben's Ben's comes on and off depending where he is. When he's in Australia, it's a bit more Australian for marketing reasons. And then when he's in the States, it's, it's, it's full-blown American. So, yeah, I try to make an effort of not losing it, but at, at times it just slips out. It's kind of like your lisp and your Boston accent, right? Shit. Yeah, no doubt. But the funniest thing is when you're doing on the Journey podcast, talking to another Australian, it's like- it's like you, both you fuckers are underwater with like $5 and change in your mouth trying to have a conversation. I, need, I still need subtitles. Oh, we speak the Queen's English here, mate. England, Australia, Queen's English. You guys copied us and put that American bullshit <laughs> twang on oh, everything. Oh, my, my Boston accent's the fucking worst. Like, I got my balls busted constantly. Like, constantly. Park the car, Harvard's yard, all that stuff. And you know what? I did it on purpose even more just to bust, just to fucking, just to bust their balls back. But yeah. You have to double down when you get shit. That's the way to go. Yeah, no doubt. So that, that was Vince from Sydney. Appreciate that one. Number three comes with a really good story. Are there any players in the NBA, past or present, that you believe get a better or worse rap by the media, general public? than what they actually are like in real life. I know some players have a pretty poor image in the public eye, but maybe completely different in real life and vice versa. Keen to hear of some of the players that you believe got a better or worse rap than they deserve. And that was uh, Joe Adami from Sydney. 100%. I think there's, there is a boatload of NBA players that do all these kind of public speaking gigs and PR gigs and some charity work and everyone thinks that they're kind of the best person in the world that are the complete opposite in a locker room. And then there's vice versa. There's there's guys that, that you know, have a scale about him on the court. I mean, what Russell Westbrook, from what I've heard, you know, on the court, he's he looks like, we've spoken about it before, like he's going to eat your little puppy dog. But then from what I've heard off the court, he's one of the nicest guys going around. So there's definite reality to what you're saying. Off the top of my head, I mean, I couldn't couldn't give you someone off the top of my head because there's there's so many guys I've played with. But I mean, you probably agree with that, that pro. I mean, it's, it is what it is. I mean, a lot of it is Hollywood and Instagram and smoke and mirrors and about trying to Everyone wants to be that. I'm, I'm a really nice guy and I do everything for the community, but, you know, reality says it's not always true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I won't, 
I think there's a lot of people like that in every walk of life like that. That's sort of a little bit of a fake. Um, I'll, I'll give a story about the opposite. I'm not going to put anybody on blast on, on the other, you know, being a bad dude. I got enough fucking enemies. I don't need another one. But with like, we got JaVel McGee in, in Dallas for a year. And everyone said like media that like made fun of him, doesn't really like basketball, doesn't do this, doesn't do that, unprofessional. I'll tell you what, that guy was early, that guy was on time to every workout, wanted to come early to work out, wanted to shoot. Yes, yes, you know, yes, no, always respectful. And I, I was expecting a completely different player to what I I noticed for a year with Javel. You know, sometimes people get a bad rap like that. You know, we're like, oh, you know, he's a bad guy. He does this. He does that. I'll tell you what, JaVel McGee was great to deal with for a year, you know, it, that we had him in Dallas. Yeah, I mean, mine would probably be, funnily enough, Steven Jackson has a really bad rap kind of off the court. But the thing with him was, you know, he wouldn't really work out on the offseason, wouldn't do all that stuff. But once you were in the game with him, he was balls to the wall. Um, and I've mentioned that before. Like, so, I mean, he probably rightfully has a, a bad rep. Um, off the floor sometimes. I'm involved in, in a shootout, in not a basketball shootout, a gun shootout in Indiana when he was there. So he was he was in some off-court altercations and he's been on record talking about those. So I'm not saying anything that's not new. But I mean, one thing that shocked me was when he, when I played with him, I thought he'd be, I thought he'd be a tough guy to play with. I thought he'd be dismissive. Like I've won a championship. I'm, I'm the man, this, that. But once you got on the court with him, he was a fantastic teammate. But um, you know that, that didn't always kind of relate off the court with with all these business dealings and whatnot. So he'd be probably one guy that I'd I'd put out there. Thanks, Joe, from Sydney for for your question. And the, what I missed at the start of that, what I was trying to read out, but was stuttering like crazy, is eventually on the My Journey podcast, um, there'll be a good story relating that, resonating with some kids, which we'll, we'll post down the track. So keep an eye on that in the future. So question four, love the pod. Bizarre listening to you talk about growing up in Dever Hills lived up the road and went to the opposite school, Southern Cross, which was just down the street, but was the, the rival school in the neighborhood. Question about payment in the NBA. I don't care how much you get, got paid. I was always taught not to count someone else's money, but how do they pay you? Is it weekly, monthly, pregame, and how much did the US tax system fuck you over? <laughs> Keep up the good work, pal. Let me know if you need a Sparky for that house. Okay, Sparky is electrician anyway, pro, but... um. Andrew from Officer, that's a good question. Uh, it's it's kind of changed now. When I first came in the league, it was all negotiable, so... Have them. Let's say you sign for a million dollars. Generally, you could negotiate it how you wanted it. Teams liked to pay it every every two weeks. Some players, agents would negotiate it to get it over twelve months because they were worried that some guys would get to the off season and not have any money. And that's a true story. Generally, it's over the course of the season. So your first check will be, I think it's November fifteen is your first paycheck, and it goes till I think April or May, and then you don't get any money you know, for the off season, but you've got received your whole amount over six months. But some agents, like I said, didn't like that because players would spend that six month salary in six months and then be in the summer be, you know, looking for coins to to try and get by. Um I've heard some guys have got payment up front before. It doesn't happen a lot in the NBA, but I've heard guys have just got one big check. I can't remember who the player was. It was someone that might have been Richard Jefferson. Someone told me a story that they their first check they they didn't even cash that they um they framed and put on the wall. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's different for everyone, and I guess it's just whatever works for you. And some teams are they don't like changing things up. They do it for the same for everyone. And some teams are a bit no, more negotiable. What have you heard, bro? Yeah, I mean we I, I've been around players that uh, one guy uh, I'll, I'll keep his name out just because it's money. 
but he got he wasn't great with money. <laughs> Shocker, an NBA player not great with money, but. Um, he got 75% up front July 1, and he was getting about $12 million a year. So um, after taxes, he probably got like $3.6, $3.7 million, and then automatically went took 50 of his closest people on a private jet to go to fucking um, to go to Jamaica and probably <laughs> dropped about a half a million dollars on the trip. As you do. You know, with all expenses paid. Yeah, it's great financial management. And, um, you know, I've, I've heard... Uh, there was also a player that owed me money in Boston. And again, I'll protect him for this. He owed me a couple of grand and I was trying to get it from him. And I didn't think it was going to be a big deal. He was a rookie at the time. And, you know, I, I kept on calling him. He was dodging me. It was at the end of the year. And the, uh, the security guy was like, hey, don't even fucking try it. <laughs> don't even try it. Like, I've heard of stories where that guy needed like 500 bucks to go to, uh, you know, for a card game. And then he gave his card to somebody to go down to the ATM and, and the thing had insufficient funds on it. Sometimes it's, it's obviously good to, to try to spread your payments out, but I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, at some point it's going to be spent if they're not, if they're not, you know, if they're not spending the right money. Yeah. And it's just a sad part of the pro sports. And I know I've heard some financial, Advisors and agents have have had separate bank accounts. Uh, the athlete owns both the ca- the accounts, but one of them needs a dual signatory for withdrawals. So what what some people would do is they would have say I'm, I get you know I'm getting twenty thousand dollars every every two weeks um, after taxes. Ten of it would go in the one account, ten of it would go in my account, and I could do what I wanted with one that one half, and the other half I couldn't touch unless. I signed along with my financial advisor and agent. So then they'd be asking you what you're using it for. And if they didn't deem it, you know, reasonable, they wouldn't give you the money. And that was just try to, you know, have that athlete have some funds remaining when they're, when they're done with their career. So it is hard because at the end of the day, it's, it's back to that George Hill comment, right? Of, I'm a grown man. It's my money. Um, so sometimes the people trying to help them help athletes cop, cop the wrath of the blame and, and end up getting fired. And they just hire someone that's going to let them withdraw their money when they want. How about the power of attorney stories? I mean, do you have a few of those? Do I? I, I don't. Yeah, I got one. There was a player that we dealt with, that I dealt with in the past, that, again, wasn't great with money, had a street guy as his uh, financial advisor, and bought a Phantom. You know, bought a Phantom. I don't know what they cost, like 400 grand or whatever. And we were like, hey, where's your Bentley? He goes, oh, well, I, you know, I sold it. I said, who'd you sell it to? Oh, my financial guy. I was like, you dumb motherfucker, you just sold the fucking, you just sold your car and bought it with your own fucking money. Because why do you think that guy's going to fucking get it? That guy doesn't, that guy couldn't get credit to get a fucking Blockbuster video card. You think he could fucking buy a Bentley? They said, this is a great, this is awesome. But yeah, so NBA money stories, you could go. Oh, no, I think we need to do a spinoff pod for that down the line. But, but one final one I had was a, it was a gambling one where um, we we're playing Denver when I was with the Warriors. And I can't remember who it was. I think it was Jared Jack on my team saw – who was it? It was someone on Denver, Ty Lawson. He had a brand-new Bentley. So, we, we go out to, f- to to play Denver for, for game one or two in the series and um, there's a brand-new Bentley in the parking lot and seats Jared Jack's friends with Ty Lawson and he goes, man, that's a nice-ass – you know, it's a nice Bentley, man. Like, and he goes, oh, yeah, Player X bought it for me. And he's like, what do you mean? And he goes, Bure, you know, car game on the plane. He goes, yeah, oh. he, he, he basically – I got him to just write a check to the dealership and, and went and gave it to the dealership and picked up the car. <laughs> I'm just like, what? This is a, for everyone out there, this is a two, three hundred thousand dollar car. Jesus Christ. Um, and he goes, yeah, player X bought it for me. <laughs> I'm just like, oh my God. You know, I gamble, but that's, that's a whole nother level, man. Losing a Bentley on a flight, playing Bure, oof, that hurts. But yeah, moving on from that, 
Thanks, Andrew, for, from Officer Victoria for, for that question. Number five, if the Olympics get played this year, big if, there are currently about 10 players in or around the NBA, including guys like Ryan Brokoff from Australia, obviously. If they're all available, how many get picked in the squad and which non-NBA players get picked? Was there a bit of confusion at the last World Champs when guys like Nathan Sobey, Cam Glidden, and Chris Goulding were taken over the fringe NBA players like Mitch Creek and Dengadel? Jesse from your memory asked that question. And I th- this was a good one because I don't think it's it's just a question that you answer around who's going to make the squad. Um, I think most NBA players will make the squad, and uh, Jesse, but I can't tell you. I can't tell you what role players are playing well in Europe right now. I mean, everything's so hard to follow. But I will give you this. Um, our, our coach got a lot of flack for putting in three NBL players over over fringe NBA guys. But it comes down to what we've spoken about before. Those guys, we knew that those guys as 10, 11, 12 guys wouldn't, wouldn't cause any problems about not playing. We knew if they got in, they'd be solid. We knew if they got in, they weren't trying to prove themselves for their minutes about trying to get more minutes or I'm getting screwed in the rotation. They'll just be happy with what they got. And with national teams, there's a there is a strategy behind that. You, you can't you can't have a, an NBA player or a fringe NBA player as your 12th man, I don't think, because it's just very hard for them not to be playing. They might see the national team as an opportunity to help their stock get out of being a fringe NBA guy to an NBA guy. So there's a lot of moving parts, and you got to have role players. Um, you can't you, – you, I'll go on record and say if you take 12 NBA players – um, for the Australian national team, there's going to be some issues along the way. Um, so I, I think the mindset for Andre Lamanis, the head coach, was we've got our eight or nine core NBA players. We need some complementary pieces, and that might be, hey, we don't need, you know, Dinger Dell is a pretty good scorer. He's a, a slasher, but we didn't really need that with our 12th spot. We needed probably more a role guy like a, you know, Cam Glidden, who we knew feet set wide open from three would knock it down, and that was what we needed at a minimum. So. I guess that answers your question, but don't always look at it as, well, oh, you know, Dingadale's better than Nathan Sobey one-on-one. It doesn't work that way with team basketball and especially with the national team. Yeah, Olympic basketball. Um, if you're an NBA player in or a fringe NBA player, you're right. Like you want... It's all it's all perception, especially if you're trying to get to a job, right? But unless you have really like patriotic or whatever you call it, just spirit for your country and, and and you bleed for your country and you won't care about sitting out. But mostly when you're putting together Olympic teams, it seems like you have to put role players together. You know, somebody who could really guard a couple of spot up shooters. Yeah, you're going to have two or three players that dominate the ball, but you need those other two players on the floor with them to be just role players. And if you're going to get 12... Complimentary. Yeah. If you're going to get 12 players that are going to want the ball all the time and just to score, you're never going to do well because those Olympic, those those national teams of other countries, you know, you've been in it. You've been in those wars. Those guys are well-oiled machines. They pass the ball. They move the ball. They guard people. They're hungry and, and and they're trying to win. So I think the more... More complementary players and system players that you could have on an Olympic team is best, and then obviously you need you know you need two or three players for firepower. Yep, yeah, I'm the same. So, thanks for your question, Jesse. The sixth one was an interesting. One comes from Michael Wien. Doesn't say where from, but uh, I assume overseas somewhere in, in the Golden State area because the Warriors related question. But it was exciting when, I, when you came with the Warriors. I like Monte, but I knew the decision was right at the time. Going through your freak injuries, I remember from media coverage that these affected your confidence both at the line and in offensive aggression 
even as you got healthy with the Warriors. At the same time, I'm sure you were still working on these parts of your game. There have been so many players, Andres Biedrens, Kelly Oubre right now, affected by lack of confidence. How did the coaches try to help you here, if at all? How did you approach it? If you could place yourself mentally today into yourself 2012, would you be better equipped to overcome these issues? That's a great question because it, it definitely, I'm not going to lie, the free throw line later on in my career really affected me. I mean, I, I became, you know, I wasn't a, a great free throw shooter early in my career, but I didn't give a, I didn't give a shit about missing free throws. I, I was getting most of the touches with Milwaukee. I was a first, second option. So it just didn't really affect me mentally. Where it affected me was after I broke my arm, I was shooting, you know, 60s, mid 60s and, and really started to feel good at the line, like started really putting the time and work in. So then I snapped my right arm and that took me, you know, a year or two to, to even get proper feel and and just that that touch back to, a, you know, an average level. I started getting hack-a-shacked at times in games and that kind of rattled me a little bit. Hack-a-shack meaning that when they're in the bonus, they can fail you purposely to put you to the line. So then it's like, damn, I need to make these to stay in the game. So it added that bit of pressure and then- yeah, there's there's no doubt there were there were games where if if I if I had knocked down you know if I'm two for five going to the line again you know my aggress my aggressiveness kind of went down a little bit and I'm not going to hide from it. I, it was an issue that I, I was battling through probably the last probably mainly the last four or five years of my career and it's just something that you had to go through. It was kind of like the yips in golf and I, I was then shooting you know fifty percent um, the last couple of years in the league, but funnily enough came back to Australia and I got it back to seventy percent. My first year in the NBL and then in, in my last year in the NBA, which wasn't a huge sample size, I was in the 70s. So I felt like I shot it better and, and I changed a few things and just I think I just took time away to just really reassess that it wasn't that as important. Um, but I know you and I probably worked on it a lot and and you you know emphasized on getting getting the arc up similar to the Rondo story. But look, it does it does affect you. And it was just something that when you're in the moment, especially being around great shooters like Steph and Clay. I thought, I thought like when I got hacker shacked at times, it was kind of letting them down and, and it just added probably more pressure on myself than I, than I probably should have put. Did you remember Denver when we started that whole thing? So you, you were hurt. I, I don't know if it was your knee or your ankle. I forgot the injury you had with us. You were, you were going to be out for a couple of weeks. So you missed a few in a row and you booted the fucking ball in Denver. You know, after practice, after shoot around, you probably booted the ball almost into the upper deck and I was with somebody else. <laughs> And the rebounder said, all right, let's just try this. Let's try this. And it, after like 15, 20 minutes, you actually made like 17 in a row. And, you know, of course you had to get better and then fucking get traded because I, I said, let the guy make a couple in a row so I could feel good about myself once in my fucking life. But of course you get traded, I get fired. You know, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, but it's, I mean, it is a good question. I, I saw it firsthand. You know, I, I struggled with it, but I, Andres Biedrens was a sad case for me because he was a fantastic young, big early in his career, really aggressive, mobile. And he just got to a point where he, sh- I think he shot like, 14% one year or something like that from the line and it was yeah you felt bad because it was he obviously had he's he's just a mental yip like he was done he was done like he was he keep he'd be holding it too long sometimes then sometimes he'd shoot it too early and he'd be falling over the line then he'd be falling back I kind of my issues were I kind of concreted not falling forward and backwards as much and it was just more mental and touch but he was he was bamboozled and it, it got to the point where guys would be making fun of him and he knew that it was an issue yep. so he then didn't want to even get into games and it does happen and that's I guess when you when I'm when I was younger and dumber I couldn't have given two shits about it but I think when you get older and you overthink the game and it's generally guys that um 
you know, th- overthink things and are probably on the sm- smarter side of things in, in in going deep into things that they probably shouldn't even be thinking about that it affects. But it's just something you got to you got to work out. And you know, like like Pro said, at times at, at training, at practice, when the when the lights were out, I'd I'd be shooting at like a you know eighty ninety percent free throw shooter. And then in the game, you just you know you're tired, the the crowd noise, you're fatigued, you're think overthinking it. I need to make these. I need to make these. And you go up there and you throw some bricks, but that's just something you got to deal with. But um. We'll segue that into story story time with Pro and Bogues. I've got I've got a pretty good one. Um, I know you do too, but I'll I'll get started with this one. It's it's an interesting one. So a good friend of mine. <laughs> it's kind of really off topic, off record, and random, but I think it's funny. So a good friend of mine is Harrison Barnes, and Pro was actually there. So I know he won't comment too much about it, but he can co-sign exactly what happened. Harrison Barnes has a wedding up in where was it? Pro it was in northern northern Massachusetts. Oh, Maine. it was in it was in Newport. It was in Newport, Rhode Island, in a mansion. In a, it was and it was, there was something filmed. In, there was a movie film there, wasn't there? Always, yeah. It's one of the more famous places on the East Coast. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful, one of the best weddings I've ever been to. Yeah, and it was on the water, this massive house mansion, probably an acre and a half, two acre property. So Harrison Barnes has a, has a, a wedding. I was really good friends with Harrison and, and my wife was really good friends with Brittany's wife. So we fly out from Australia for it just for that wedding for two or three days. So there's Harrison's with the Mavericks. That's why Pro was there. That's why a bunch of Mavericks and, and Golden State Warriors, North Carolina guys are there. A lot of NBA players, Steph Curry, you know, you name it, was there. So Rick Carlisle, who's the quirkiest of of, of people on a good day, um, random. You never know what he's <laughs> what he's going to do. Does some funny shit. Does some random shit. Does some crazy shit. And he, um, for some reason, I guess I don't even know. We're about to have dinner, and, and he gets the microphone, and he goes up and, and starts giving kind of a talk now he's only known harrison for maybe how long how long would it have been pro it was the first year right uh, yeah maybe a year if, if not two yeah. tops not long not not like it's not long. not speech worthy <laughs> not, not speech worthy so he gets a microphone and he goes up and he ends up treating harrison's wedding like it was a team appearance and what i mean by that is when you have a team appearance let's say 10 of us go to a you know, a community center or a supermarket that's a sponsor and, and you know, you'll all have a microphone, you'll all get asked questions and you'll answer one or, one or two questions each in 30 minutes and you, you're gone out of there, right? So he, he ends up starting it with, you know, Harrison's an important person in all of our lives now. Now, who he has played with Harrison? So he's like, okay, put your hands up. So we all put our hands up. And this is at a wedding. So then he's like, all right, matter of fact, everyone stand up that, uh, that has played with Harrison or been involved with him on a basketball court. So basically that's half the room, half the room standing up. You know, you got myself, Draymond Green, Seth Curry, Steph Steph Curry, uh, Andre Iguodala, whoever, right? So then he's talking, talking, talking. And then he's like, matter of fact, guys, come up here. Come up here. And lines us basically up. And how many would, would there have been, pro? 20, 30, 40 people lined up? At least. At yeah. least. So we're in a, we're in a single file yeah. line. He's got a microphone like he's the MC of the event. So then he starts <laughs> to go down the line one by one. He, I think he started with Kyrie Irving. <laughs> Ask him a question. Like, Tell us something about the first time you've, uh, you know, you, you ever interacted with Harrison or some memories. So then Kyrie's like, uh, you know, like just was like, what the hell's going on here? This is weird. He gets about to the second or third guy in the line and Harrison's wife just stands up and she's like, that's enough. Stop. And she was pissed. Like, what the hell are you doing? So Rick's like, oh, sorry, sorry. You know, we all, we all then go and sit down and we're all kind of laughing about it. He then segues that onto <laughs> walking over to the piano and giving a solo <laughs> on the piano and it was just one of those moments of the psyche of Rick Carlisle the guy's one of the most random people I've been around very very smart guy funny at times just because some of it's 
meant to be funny. He wants to make you laugh and some of it's just the shit that he does, but just one of those things that I still remember and Harrison and I, to this day, still piss ourselves laughing about it. You remember that day, Pro? Yeah, I was. I think I was hunting down some scallops wrapped in bacon, but yeah, I do remember that. And I do remember Ronnie Two K being there and players, you know, players trying to uh, trying to kiss his ass like he was a king, trying to get their Two uh, K rating up a couple of points. Oh God, yeah, I remember that too. Isn't he in a, in a velvet jacket? Wasn't he? A velvet fucking jacket, <laughs> like Willy Wonka. <laughs> what do you got for us? Uh, you know, I was gonna try to get out of the NBA for a little bit and talk about. A story that's pretty fucking funny, I'll be honest. So, when I started coaching, I never really wanted to get in the NBA. Never really thought about it. it. You know, basketball was a lot different back then as far as getting in the league and things. I never thought about it. I just wanted to coach high school, maybe work with some players and that's it. So, I was about 20 years old. I was a senior in college and I wanted to get uh, my alma mater, which probably had about two winning seasons since Kennedy got shot, had an opening for their head varsity job. The AAU coach I was working for worked for Rick Pitino early on in his career when Rick Pitino was at Boston University and they were very close. And he goes, hey, I can get Rick Pitino to call for you, the AD. And I'm like, oh, that's great. So the AD was like an old school football guy, didn't know much about basketball, but like, you know, but it's real old school. There was a guy in my town, which my town's full of ball busters. Shocker, right? But there's a guy named Peter DiGiulio in there. He was a track coach, drug education teacher, known all around the town of being one of the biggest ball busters on two feet. And he busted this AD's balls constantly. So Rick Pitino coming off a national championship at Kentucky calls the guy and he says, hey, Silvio Cello, this is Rick Pitino, head coach of, of, of the Kentucky Wildcats. I want to talk to you about Mike Procopio being your next uh, varsity coach. The first thing he says out of his mouth is, fuck you, DiGiulio, and he hangs up on Pitino. <laughs> All right, this guy this guy gets like $10,000 of speech, and this guy's getting hung up on him by a fucking AD in some, high, some no-name high school in the East. So he calls back. He calls back and he he calls him again. Uh, hello? He goes, yes, uh, Silvio, this is, you know, Rick Pitino. He goes, hey, DiGiulio, stop fucking busting my fucking balls. I don't have time for your shit. Fuck off. And he hangs up, hangs up on him twice. And he fucking called back. Hence to say, Third time. I still didn't get the job. Third time was not a charm for me. I still didn't get it. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 other guy had, the other guy had a fucking bookie call for him or, or some fucking homeless guy and he got the job. And I fucking can't get the job getting Rick Pitino to call him my fucking behalf that's great that's a good that's a good segue and probably next part we'll probably get into some nba nba type pranks there's been some absolute gems over the years but no doubt thanks for your time again pro hope everyone's enjoyed another episode of the rogue bugs basketball series a lot to talk about follow us on all the socials at rogue bugs facebook twitter instagram at hoop consultants for mike's business is doing some unique things so check that out but um thanks for your time mike anytime brother